I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. One of the central themes is the human predator and the concept that, that there are people who are malignant. And if we taught our kids to recognize the characteristics of such people, then they would be less likely to vote for them, they'd be less likely to join their cults, and they'd be less likely to marry them. Come one, come all, it's John Atak back on the podcast. John is one of the most fascinating people I know. He's a friend of the show, and he's a friend of mine, though he is not responsible by association for any of my erratic or immoral behaviour. Now that's out of the way, I believe John is owed an introduction. He is a former Scientologist and is one of the biggest names in the ex-Scientology community, known for his work, A Piece of Blue Sky, which in 1990 was pretty groundbreaking in exposing L. Ron Hubbard, or just Ron Hubbard as John calls him, the founder of Scientology, the cult that attracted super rich and famous members like Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Leah Ramini from the King of Queens sitcom, Isaac Hayes, who played Chef in South Park, I think, Kirsty Alley, um, Nancy Cartwright, the, she does the voice of Bart Simpson and other characters, Jenna Elfman, who played Dharma in Dharma and Greg, that sitcom, and Elizabeth Moss, the, the main character from The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, John has gone on to write many books about the ways that people are swayed and brought in by cults. He explores ideological thinking and authoritarianism, in particular in his latest work, Opening Our Minds, Avoiding Abusive Relationships and Authoritarian Groups. His is one of the smartest and most intriguing minds that I know, so it's great just chatting to him and seeing where things go, tangentially speaking, going off on all sorts of tangents, that is. So I hope this works for you dear listener. I should warn you that John does make, and there's nothing wrong with this, plenty of references to British things that happened before I were born. But don't worry if you didn't get all the references, because I didn't, but the anecdotes always go in a very interesting direction anyway. I uh, hope you enjoy this one. Do consider purchasing John's Opening Our Minds book, and follow him on Twitter on atac underscore John, 
I'm on Andrew Gold underscore OK, so follow me there and get in touch. Also, there's a great Patreon bit where I asked John, this is in the bonus, by the way, I asked him all sorts of weird questions, which he answers brilliantly. These include what is the most useless talent you have, uh, what body part you wouldn't mind losing, and what's the closest thing to real magic. To hear that and all my other episodes ad-free and with bonus extra parts, just go to patreon.com slash andrewgold. But now you're on the edge of mind control and abusive cults with the fabulous John Atak. John Atak, you are on the edge. That's the thing since we last spoke that I've started saying to people who are on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm actually doing fabulously well, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing really well. It's such a, well, I'm, no, I'm not actually. That's a lot. What's the point in me saying that when you know off the air that I've been moaning about how stressed I am because of construction downstairs? I always end up next to somebody who needs to like refurnish their entire flat. Do you ever get that? Well, I've been the person doing it, actually. It could have been me that's been doing it all these years, <laughs> wherever you move. I, I spent a week, actually, um, doing work on a flat in Clapham in London. And uh, on the last day, about half an hour, I was I was putting down brass runners between, you know, in the thresholds, the doorways, drilling into the floor. And finally, the um, couple below, the, the man phoned my girlfriend and said, uh, look, you know, my wife's pregnant and this has been going on all week. And they got into this terrible argument about it. Oh, no. And I'd finished, you know, it was like, but oh, um, there was no point by that. But point. no, she liked little- arguing with people, which is why. We're not together anymore. What can I say? <laughs> it's a little bit like um, road rage, isn't it? There are certain things where we're quite calm as human beings in general. And then when it's like you're inside a box in a car or you're inside a flat, we get very territorial suddenly and we start like baring our teeth. It can very, I'm very conscious of even saying to him, I want to go downstairs and say, hi, mate. Nice. To see, how are you doing? Totally understand. You've got to do your stuff. You've got to do. I wonder if in the future you might be able to just tell me, you know, what when there are dates so I can arrange my podcast interviews around that something like that and i think i think that might lead that might be an argument there's a richard brotigan story um uh where where he very short story and it reads something like um it's very hard living next door to a man who's learning to play the violin she said as she handed the revolver to the policeman (laughs) that is a very you could try that approach as well you know Oh, God. We had a big argument in because we're now in Bristol. We were in Berlin and we had the same thing. It was some guy next door who decided to take it all into, I guess, a bit like you. He took his entire uh, renovation into his own hands. So rather than get someone in to do it maybe in a week, he could have got a team of people. He did it for about a year and a half, just constantly. And when he finally finished, he started playing. He had he bought some new speakers and started playing heavy metal music and stuff. So that's when we were just like, right, end of tether. And we went and spoke to him. And he was just so aggressive from the off. But it is that thing, you get so defensive over your territory like that. Yeah, it, it is funny that you're absolutely right that, that you know, I, I like to think of myself as a fairly mild-mannered human being who's very accommodating and peaceful, but sometimes you just have to kill people. What can I say? You know? <laughs> have you killed anyone? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Not recently, no. 
<laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't tell me, probably. Hey, we should um, talk about a little bit. I guess for people who weren't there last time or don't know who you are, those those ignorant, ignorant people. Would you be able to give us a little, little? Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Because you've done so many interesting things and everything. Could you give us a little brief introduction to who you are, John Atak? Well, I'm reckoned to to be knowledgeable about authoritarianism. It boils down to that. That. Authoritarian relationships, abusive relationships, cult groups, terrorist groups. I actually just had a chapter in an Oxford University Press book. You know, how about that? Which is, um, what an accolade, uh, called Lone Actor Terrorism. It's a chapter I wrote with Steve Hassan and a a couple of fine researchers. Steve Hassan's a big name in the cult uh, sort of thing as well. You you guys are both, you're the big names. He's the biggest name. I mean... um, and he's a really good friend. We've known each other for more than 30 years. Um, and it, indeed, he claims that I edited um, two of his books. So uh, <laughs> I, I came to uh, universal prominence 30 years ago by writing a book called Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, which we talked about a little bit when, when first we met. So I'm generally interested in um, how we might change the bully culture that we call democracy into democracy and get rid of these crazy lunatics who are running the world and get people, you know, to be able to express their opinions and speak out and and not be cowed. So I've studied the techniques of manipulation. I I helped to found the Open Minds Foundation and um, my last, latest, I've also written novels and I had one-man shows as a painter. I'm a photographer. I play drums. Uh, I, I, I'm a Renaissance man. Uh, not really. <laughs> What's the word? Is it a, fo- a fop or a dandy? Those are both Renaissance things. I don't know what the difference between them are. But dandies are really interesting one because Beau Brummel was the founder of the dandies. And we think of a dandy as somebody who, you know, shows off. And, and in fact, mm. he was stopping that trend, um, oh. you know, to, towards the powdered wigs and all of that stuff stuff um foppery is uh, another matter altogether um yeah somewhat after the renaissance the, the concept the idea is a polymath somebody who who do, is not just a jack of all trades which is probably what i am but a master of more than one and um i went and saw jeff beck last night actually which was fantastic because now i've seen jimmy page in 1970 <laughs> eric clapton about 10 years ago and uh, and Jeff Beck, so I've seen all three of the great guitar players, but I, I, I was a professional drummer when I was a teenager. What were the three again? Jeff Beck? Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, they, they were friends. They they all right, somehow okay. or other got involved with the Yardbirds in the mid-1960s. I only know they're Mr. Tambourine Man, which is Dylan. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that's all you know. Yeah, but didn't they do a, did they do the cover of it? Oh, well, no, maybe they didn't. The Yardbirds, um, well, the birds... Who, who didn't have a yard, did, did, did that. Um, <laughs> it's all before my time, John. Before my time, mate, you know. Um, his, history, that all happened before me. I don't care about it. Yeah. Well, Jeff Future. X still alive. Yes, no, he is. I know him. Everybody's got to learn sometime. No, that's, that's Beck. Him. That's Beck. <laughs> we were just getting worse <laughs> and worse. He was involved with Scientology, so, you know, it's, it's all coming around. Jeff Beck's only hit single was Hi-Ho Silver Lining in the mid-60s, where they made him sing and he never did it again. He is an incredible guitar player and um, just wonderful. The, the strange thing was, though, that 
towards the end of the gig, he introduced, he said, hey, there's a guy who came into my dressing room five years ago and we made an album together and Johnny Depp walked onto the stage. Oh, my God. I knew you had a Johnny Depp story and I wondered what I did. I thought, how is this going to link to Jeff Beck? What, hang on, what, last night? Jeff, he's supposed to be at court. Yeah, that's what we thought. It's like you're taking time off from crying in court so you can sing isolation, you know. But That's one um, of Jeff Beck's songs, is it? No, it's it's a song they recorded together, and I think oh, that. I think it actually sold some copies. But I, I don't take any notice of that because I've got YouTube, and I don't need to buy anything anymore. I wonder what the um, how that might affect the outcome of his trial because they're still are they still deliberating at the moment? I've no idea what's happening, and it and it is such a weird situation, isn't it? It's a he said he said she said. And here's a nasty text message that he wrote, you know, which is a little brutal. Paul Bettany. Yeah, uh, on cocaine, apparently. <laughs> I'm writing a book about the psychology of secrets. And the point is now, you, you can't, I mean, nothing is a secret. There's a death of secrets to, to an extent because Paul Bettany has nothing to do with this court case. And he wrote a private message to a friend. And yet that's been broadcast to the entire world. So what does that mean for privacy and secrecy? It, it, it's like, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. On the internet, everyone can hear you whisper, you know, and, and it's there forever. Does that worry you, John? It doesn't worry me on a personal level because I was in Scientology for nine years, so they wrote down everything I'd ever done. And, and I, you know, I've had to live for nearly 40 years with, with um, you know, how much of that would be leaked. And I was such a dreadful person by the age of 19 when I joined them. Um They've got stuff up online accusing me of rape, attempted murder, uh, heroin addiction. None of the foregoing is true or, or in fact, has bears any semblance to reality. Could you sue them? Uh, along the way, and I didn't win. Um, they, I, I sued them for uh, malicious falsehood. And um, they hired a lawyer who would... Um, later, very soon afterwards, became the Dean of All Souls College, the largest Oxford college, was one of only eight barristers who made more than a million in fees that year. And he was brilliant. And as um, Lord Justice Wolfe said six months later, uh, it is the case in British justice, which he was reviewing at the time, uh, it is the case in British justice, English justice rather, that he with the deepest pockets wins. And that is true. <laughs> it's probably still true. But how was he so smart with the law that he was able to find a way that what was clearly what def defamation and whatever you know the other thing that you said that that that, that did, he they didn't lose. It didn't get to court, and and the reason it didn't get to court is because of discovery law, which is you know that you putting your documents into the case, and Lord Justice Wolfe changed this aspect of the law. And the idea was that if you'd presented a document that showed something, so that you had seven documents that all had the same thing in them, then they could come after the other six. And because we hadn't, yeah, I can't remember what it was now, it's so long ago, um, back in the 90s. But, you know, they, I'd put in my bank statements, but I hadn't put in my check stubs. And they got me. And uh, I was considered contumacious or contumelious. You can choose which word you like. And I think in all, I was involved in 10 court cases with them because after I'd sued them, they sued me. And it, was, it just went all over the place. I was bankrupted from legal costs, you know. This is quite common 
I, I imagine in cults, obviously, that's Scientology. I, I happen to know quite a lot about the Hasidic Jews, uh, being Jewish myself and having grown up in that area. And I know that they lawyer up. Like, if somebody tries to leave uh, and take their kids, that's the main one. If a woman leaves and wants to take her kids with them, it's just impossible because they get the best, best lawyers. They pay so much money. How do we stop that going on? Well, I, I think I think we need, you know, I think we need to, to change the way we we look at things and we, we've become such a society of professionals you know i'm a big fan of david graeber and among his books is bullshit jobs and um there are estimates of how valuable jobs are some years ago graeber didn't do this and it proved that cleaners were worth about 10 times their weight in gold and um lawyers were worth i don't know a bag of peanuts that you know, so a cleaner will be paid what you know, eight pounds an hour, and a lawyer will be paid eight hundred pounds an hour. And so much of what they're doing, having been involved, I've been involved. I was a consultant to about one hundred and fifty cases over the years in the US and here, even one in Australia, another one in Brazil. And the amount, the paper mountain, you know, that uh, when I was bankrupted, Scientology demanded that I, I go into court here in Nottingham, which was a little bit embarrassing. And I had four days on the witness stand. And the um, the lawyer representing them had 29 black box folders in front of him. So that was all the paper that had been generated in the litigation by that time. And it, it's just nonsense. You know, it, it's, it's the Marx Brothers. The party in the first part will hereafter be known as the party in the first part. We don't have needed that. There's no such thing as a sanity clause, you know, it, it, and, and it's long. I mean, Shakespeare commented on this. It's not a new thought that, um, you know, it's not telephone sanitizers that we should be sending to another planet. There is no such thing as a telephone sanitizer, by the way. Um, Douglas Adams invented them for the Hitchhiker's Guide, I, I believe, you know, and I hope now he's dead. I hope he doesn't sue me for saying that. But it should be the lawyers and and. Um, the bankers, and you know, we've got this. Naomi Klein pointed out that when Ronald Reagan became president in '81, was it? The average chief executive officer earned forty times what the average blue-collar worker earned. By 2000, when she was writing, it was 411 times. You know, so I th I think that's a part of it. This status that's afforded to people, and also changing changing the attitude of the courts so that, you know, the idea that family courts are run pretty much the same way as criminal courts to this day, only they don't put the wigs and the robes on. They did, you know, they modernised that much, but you're still in this great big imposing room with just two people who hate each other and, and are wanting to destroy each other and therefore quite willing to destroy their own children's lives along the way. You know? So I, I, think we, I think we need new attitudes about a lot of things. Uh, particularly in America, about carrying assault weapons. You know, I think that does need to be a little bit of a, you know, I think we should, everybody should write to bear arms. Everybody should have their own nuclear arsenal. And then the world <laughs> John, will be a safe place. You've just lost about... <laughs> You've just lost twenty percent of my my listenership, but the other eighty percent are loving are loving it. <laughs> Good. Well, let's go for the eighty twenty rule then. Yeah, I, yeah. I get people comment on my channel and and they'll they'll say. Uh, you're right about what you say, but you're so wrong about Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, really. <laughs> but that's what I get. I mean, that's everything, isn't it? That's like, I mean, I get that with uh, 
whatever it happens to be the thing that that one person is upset by. So every every episode, as you probably know, I do a completely different thing. It could be about right wing, could be about the alt right, could be about left wing and woke culture mm. and all that stuff, or it could be about cults and religion. And whoever is from that, so I've had Hasidic Jews get in touch and get very upset with me. Oddly I've enough. had woke people get upset and they say i like all your other ones but i don't like the ones you did about woke culture because you're a right wing this and that and then the right wing people get in touch and go oh look at you you don't like your guns what's wrong with you and you just can't you can't and i remember i mean ricky gervais says if you try and please i mean he's happy isn't he he seems quite happy as as far as people go and he says if you if you try and please everyone you please no one yeah but is he happy or has he actually seen Stuart lee accusing him of having a 10-hour crying wank you know what I think is a good sense, and for anyone who doesn't know, maybe people not from the UK, Stuart Lee is a left-wing comedian who, who um, doesn't seem to like Ricky Gervais, so it could be part of his act, he might like him very much in real life. Um, I think the test of somebody who's quite grounded is somebody who can enjoy both of their comedy, and I personally love both of them. That's me saying I'm fantastic, isn't it? That's <laughs> you saying I... you're well-grounded. I don't like Ricky, Ricky Gervais, so I'm therefore... Now, I'm going to be writing comments on this. You know? Yeah, oh, I know. But you should be able to... Do you not... Are you, do you, did you watch the Gervais thing? Do you like Gervais? Some of his... I, I liked extras. I thought that was brilliant. The Office just is cringe comedy to me. And, I, you know, you either, you either like cringing or you don't. And I, I didn't like, you know, Michael Crawford and... Ooh, uh, Betty and all of that stuff. But there are people... It, it was a top show, you know. So, wasn't keen on Benny Hill. Curb your enthusiasm. Uh, a friend of mine actually edits. My, my friend Roger Nygaard edits Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it's funny you should bring it up because a couple of weeks ago, I tried to watch it again be- because Roger's just this absolutely wonderful man who's made great documentaries, one of which, The Nature of Existence, I'm in. So that's well worth watching. Um, but he's The Truth About Marriage, um, Trekkies, Trekkies 2, and a wonderful movie called Suckers. So he's a really accomplished man. And, um, but he edits Kirby Enthusiasm and has for some time. And um, he's just published a book called Cut to the Monkey about editing comedy. Um, but so I thought, oh, oh, you know, I was at my father-in-law's house and he got Kirby Enthusiasm out there. So I watched two shows. I just sat there going, yeah, okay. <laughs> You can't. You don't like the. You don't like the cringe. It's because that's what it's cringe. It's just cringe, isn't it? And and deconstruction that you know it's mirroring what comedy does. In one of them, the kind of buttball guy from Seinfeld is in it, saying, "I now everybody wants to typecast me as, as a jackass," and so they go, "Oh, let's make a show about everybody trying to typecast you as a jackass." And and for me, Stuart Lee does that Infinite Mirrors so much better. You know that. You really do. I actually saw him, his current show, um, Tornado and Snowflake. Um, I saw it two years ago and then the pandemic hit and he couldn't record it. So the bugger came and did it again two years later. And it was the first time I saw him within 90 seconds, I was crying. But nothing to do with the act. Oh, no, no, it was just it was all <laughs> no, seeing how old and ill he is. It just upset me so much. But the only bit I didn't like was where he was doing the Ricky Gervais 10-hour crying wank, where where he was going, "Eh, eh, eh, ah," because somebody had said that Ricky Gervais says the unsayable. And so he was trying to say the unsayable. 
And I, that, 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 the retching bit in Stuart Lee's shows, I, I, I'm not keen on. I was going to say about Stuart Lee, as much as I love him, I can't bear when every now and then, and I won't, I won't labour on Stuart Lee because a lot of people won't know who he is, so we'll, we've got to move on soon. But They should do. Go, I mean, he is regarded definitely as, as the top stand-up comedian in the British Isles. He's been voted that, you know, um, by some newspaper. Every now and then he does do a, a sort of, he'll do something where he just makes a noise for 20 minutes. And I think that's actually a bit of an fu to the audience. I think that's not fair because they paid money to come out, and we get it, and it gets a laugh, and then it's not funny, and then it's funny again because it was for so long. But it doesn't need to be twenty minutes because people have paid money to come out. Well, they said one night not out. Not quite of the week. twenty minutes. I think there's a slight exaggeration. It's but it is too long. He did one. It was one when he was out. He was doing that. I can't remember why he did that for twenty minutes, or maybe it was ten. Yeah, or five. see, you're coming down in your estimation now. Well, I, I don't want you to think I'm an exaggerator, so I'll have to look it up no, later. It might, I do it, think that now, but it's too late. <laughs> it might have been 20 minutes. Um, tell me about your book. What's, go, what's going on? We get, let's get into the, the nitty-gritty of stuff. What's going on with it? What's going on? Uh, the book's called Opening Our Minds, and um, the subtitle is Avoiding Abusive Relationships and Authoritarian Groups. And... It came from, you know, I left Scientology in 1983 and um, left it completely. I mean, I didn't, you know, didn't believe any of it anymore. Uh, most people get it stuck in their heads and they might get rid of the language, but they, you know, they don't say past lives anymore. They say reincarnation. They don't say the overt motivator sequence. They say karma. They, they don't really think it through. And... Um, I've had a lot of time to think it through. And I started helping people firstly to leave the mother cult. And then, you know, there's, they'd call themselves independence or the free zone. And, you know, they're, I mean, the mother cult Scientology is down. I think, you know, the uh, South Park really finished them off a long time ago. Um, so you can't be sort of 19 years old and go home, to, uh, go to your mates and go, oh, I just met this wonderful thing. Because uh, I say, watch South Park come out of the closet, Tom Cruise, and you'll be ridiculed and lambasted. Don't often get a chance to use the word lambasted these days. I thought it was lambasted. Yeah, you see, lambasted. <laughs> <laughs> a few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's, do you think, did that South Park episode, did that change uh, um, Scientology's sort of cultural cachet in that moment? I think it's been happening for a long time. Um, the first I know of is Erica Young in Fear of Flying in the 70s, where she said, I decided I could either commit suicide or join Scientology. And now it's, um, you know, the Kaminsky method <clears throat> had a running thing with a Scientologist in it, Michael Douglas and... Um, What's his name? Adam Arkin? Yes. Yeah. Who himself was actually in the cult group for 30 years. It ah, happens. It's amazing how many people, because I, I grew up not knowing of anyone in a cult. And then the more you sort of, oh, this actor, that Leah Romini was another one, and obviously John Travolta, and, and loads of people. Kirst um, Kirstie Alley. Jo yeah, Joaquin Phoenix, wasn't he, I think? Uh, he may have been involved in various things. Um, Tina Turner was in the Turin Shosu. Um, uh, John McLaughlin and Carlos Santana were both involved with Sri Chinmoy. Um, Santana left after 18 years and then got busted for smoking dope. And he said, oh, it's brilliant. I can smoke dope again. <laughs> uh, no, you can't. You've been busted, mate. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix was in the Children of God's um, religious cult. Oh, and, and he and his brother River as, as kids, was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's It's a real commonplace that people have been in extreme authoritarian groups of one kind or another and when you go on sorry no no you go on sorry no you go on sorry no um, no you go you... on sorry oh it's just turning into ricky <laughs> well the part of the deconstructivism stuff yeah um Stuart Lee strikes again <laughs> No, you oh, go first. No, you go first. Yeah. Um, no, you go when, first. when? No, no, no! I lost my my train of thought. What was it? Yeah, I knew you would. When you said before that you no longer you didn't believe it anymore, Scientology stuff. 
was it also a case of you never really because when they let you into the cult this and this is a, this is also a thing of cults i've come to learn is that they don't actually tell you all the stuff you're supposed to believe until you're so deep into it that it's almost embarrassing to then turn around and go hang on well this sounds silly because you've already like you know inducted others into the cult a lot of the time and you feel that so you have to believe it was it was it some of that yes there are the posh way of saying it is increments of dissonance that um I, there's a, a wonderful forensic psychologist called Brian Tully and I got him to talk 30 years ago at a meeting in London uh, which was held at the Royal College of Surgeons of all places and um, he said that he dealt with white collar crime and he said that, that he'd be interviewing somebody and he got the same story every time that somebody said well they asked me to backdate a contract and after I'd done that they asked me to do something else and it's like the mafia you know that they, they, they'll do you a favour and then you're obliged and then you do something nasty and they say, well, we'll tell on you if you don't do this other thing. And there's that sort of thing that, that I, I've been involved in Scientology for seven years before I, I met Xenu and the Body Thetans, you know, is the, the thing that's lampooned, not lamb-basted, but lampooned <laughs> in um, hmm. lots of lambs in this conversation. Lots in of um, Lots of lambs. The silence of the lambs has now been broken. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, having some friends with little Chianti later on, um, that that this mad idea that 75 million years ago, the uh, galactic overlord Xenu uh, rounded up everybody from 76 planets, I think it was, and brought them all to Earth, blew them all up in volcanoes, and um, their spirits, the Thetans, were then clustered together and given 36 days of a processing programming of hypnotic images which by the way you will now die within two days because anybody who is not prepared and sorry about that andrew it's been nice knowing you um dies within two days of, of hearing it so i'm suddenly sat you know i've been seven years involved i've i've renovated a house and used the profit i've made to pay for this bullshit, and i'm sat there reading this pack going oh dear oh no and the weird thing was, this guy walked into the, the secret room where we're doing this, which is a basement room, of course, a dungeon. And uh, he said, um, oh, it's just like the mind parasites, isn't it? And the funny thing was that I had actually read Colin Wilson's book, The Mind Parasites, about things that feed our thoughts. And it, it just, it was a bizarre coincidence that, that made me go, oh, maybe there is something in this. You know, he's done this and... You know, he knows he didn't actually, and uh, it is in fact bullshit. But <laughs> yes, you you you're led on step by step, and and you could say the same thing. It happens in political parties, militant tendency, when they were invading the Labour Party. I I met a journalist, Ian Williamson, I think his name was, who was really brilliant. He was a really smart guy. He was writing for the Independent at the time. And he said he'd been in militant tendency. And I didn't know, you know, I knew that they didn't. And he said he'd been to Beijing to be trained. And you go, whoa. For what? Well, th their idea was that they would take over the Labour Party, get into government and um, declare us, a, you know, a, a state of the, the glorious um, Chinese Republic or something. When was that? The new when it was happening in the 1980s. And it's why in the 70s and 80s, it's why uh, Michael Foote had to get rid of the left. And that eventually led us to New Labour, this brilliant idea that you have a socialist party 
that didn't believe in socialism just in case there were any communists coming in. Tony, was that t- Tony Blair? Tony B. Liar, yeah. War <laughs> criminal and, and knighted. Emissary for peace in the Middle East. Oh dear, no, what planet am I living on? Oh, come on. Who among us is not a, a war criminal? Come on. Did you see Bush the other day when he said when he miss when he misspoke? No, what did he say? He said something along the lines of um he was talking about Ukraine and he said it's oh you know what I'm going to find the quote because I don't want to misdo it. Miss misdo it. George Bush misspeaks. Let's see if that if Google picks that up about. He said he was giving a speech and he said uh, he was talking about Ukraine and he said the result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. And then he sort of <laughs> looked for a minute like a dope. And then he said, I mean of Ukraine. Y- yeah, Ukraine. <laughs> so slightly Freudian slip there. Oh. Maybe a little bit of guilt peeking through. Three quarters of a million people dead in Iraq. Three quarters of a million, which, as Stalin pointed out, is just a statistic. You know, one one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic, you know. So, and he he killed millions of people, so he knew what he was talking about. It is hard to get your head around that kind of thing, these huge numbers and everything. It, yes. It, you know, why do you think Stalin does get an easier time among maybe younger people than Hitler does? I think Hitler's become a kind of icon of evil. Uh, you know, I would certainly place Mao Zedong at the top of the pile because we're dealing with maybe 70 million people. We're we're dealing with an astronomical number. And when you look at, you know, I got very interested in Mao because of this concept of brainwashing, that there's a, you know, there's this huge push and pull. There are pro-cult apologists, academics who say there's no such thing as brainwashing. And you're going, well, that's what the Chinese people called it. They called it Sinao which means wash brain. So, you know, the, the program in Xinjiang, we've just had the BBC release, what, 50,000 files from Xinjiang, which they've, since January, been checking through. And they said, well, there's a shoot-to-kill policy if you try and escape from the re-education centre. You know, it's a bit bit like um, British public schools, really. If you try and climb over the wall, we'll shoot you. Um, <laughs> the, you know, yeah. if you've got to take your GCSEs. <laughs> um, so come back, but yeah. that th- th- there's this notion that somehow you can't influence people. There's this notion that somehow by chaining people up, shouting at them, and you know, peeing on their copy of the Quran, that that you're not actually going to affect them mentally in any way. It's not going to change their minds. And so, you know, the other end, we get Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay. Um, I think what there were seven hundred and fifty people detained there, of whom now eight were convicted of crimes and five of them at appeal was overturned. So I think only there have been three convictions where we are people who believe that you should be, you know, show us the body, habeas corpus, you should be released within twenty four hours, according to it goes back to Magna Carta. And Tony Blair was in fact the politician who got rid of that, and in fact, seven other aspects of the um, Convention of Human Rights, the European Convention of Human Rights, which Winston Churchill drafted, um, that, that our country has actually, under his leadership, managed to get rid of rights that have existed since 1215. Progressive democracy. I'm interested 
<laughs> what you're saying about Guantanamo Bay, because is it that it just doesn't work torturing people? Well, the, the reality is uh, Barack Obama lied. And I hate to say this because he's such a cuddly, handsome man um, <laughs> with such clever ideas. But he went public and said that uh, Barack Obama, uh, Barack Obama, that's him, isn't it? Osama bin Laden. Whoa, there's a Freudian slip. Osama bin Laden was caught because of um, confessions at Guantanamo Bay. It's not true. He, it was phone taps and and he was murdered. <laughs> yeah, that's the word for it. Um, in fact, no useful information was, was extracted from one guy was waterboarded. That's what they call it. Uh, 123 times. And in fact, they weren't waterboarding. They were drow semi-drowning. Waterboarding, it's a wet towel over the face. And it's a technique that was invented by the Spanish Inquisition, who nobody expects, by the way. And you, it gives you the sensation of drowning. At Guantanamo Bay, they were actually pouring water into the lungs. So uh, just insanely crazy that, and of course, when Barack Obama, and I'm sorry to keep coming back about this lovely man, uh, his promise on the day he took office was that he would close Guantanamo Bay within the year. Eight years later, it was still open. He also said it'd get, um, it'd make gun restrictions like uh, tighter. Yes, <laughs> good luck with that. And it, of course, it was uh, Bill Clinton who who introduced extraordinary rendition, so therefore violating the Geneva Conventions, sending people to Egypt and other places where they'd be willing to torture them. I don't like Republicans either. Don't get me wrong. You know. I just generally don't like politicians. So. Yeah, that's the theme. That's the running theme here. I've not heard one that you're a fan of so far. Neville Chamberlain. Ah, Neville Chamberlain. Wasn't he supposed to be... Didn't he, he misjudge um, Hitler? It wasn't that bad? No, no. Yeah. When um, the Munich conference happened in 1938, the British Air Force had 12 high-altitude fighter planes. If war had been declared at that point, Germany would have invaded Britain. So he took a political decision. Curiously, we always get the Winston Churchill thing. Winston Churchill left government in 1931 because it had been decided that India should have home rule. That's why he left government, because he was dead against breaking up the empire. And so he had nothing to do with what the government subsequently did. In 1935, uh, Neville Chamberlain, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, the boss of the money, put money into building fighter aircraft, seeing what was going wrong. Churchill's professed opinion at the time was that we should make bombers. If we'd done that, the Battle of Britain would have been lost. Uh, the Labour Party at that time uh, voted to a man, I don't think they had any women, to a man not to, to build the aircraft, but to make hospitals and schools. After Chamberlain died, the year after he died, died in 41, I think, uh, Michael Foote, who we've already mentioned once, was one of three Labour journalists who wrote a book called The Guilty Men, which became the basis for future references to Chamberlain. The reality is, if what the Labour Party had wanted was done, there would have been no defence. Germany, If Germany had wanted Britain, it could have had it, Operation Sea Lion and all that. If Churchill had been followed, the country would have fallen. I've I've spent I was going to write a book about American presidents and then I realised nobody would read it because <laughs> I would say offensive things about every American president in the 20th century. I, I'm, they've all got massive flaws. Emory University in the US did a review of American presidents of the, and found that all of the popular ones 
were definable as narcissists. Well, I was going to say, actually, I, I, for anyone to become a politician and for anyone to have in mind this concept that they are somehow able to lead others and to do a good job of, you know, you've got to have some ego, right? There are a few exceptions. As I say, I've spent a long time looking and there are very few. But, um, for example, in, and I don't know, this is, is going way back, 600 BC, um, the city-state of Athens was in on the verge of civil war between the um, aristocrats. And by the word, by the way, the word aristo means best. So aristocrat means the rule of the best. <laughs> Let's look at that. Narcissus. Yeah. But, and it, things were very nasty. And a man called Archon, a man called Solon was made Archon. Sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Solon the Archon and the Terminators. Um, and he actually managed to settle it all down and then walked away. So there are a few examples in human history of, of people who, politicians who have not only meant well, but have done good. Um, and I think, you know, generally Barack Obama, you know, certainly with a healthcare policy, that was a great thing. And, and the idea of not becoming partisan in politics, that was a terrible mistake on the part of a, of a, of a good man. And I still think he's a good man, even though he's a war criminal. We said that about Tony Blair. Drone strikes, war crimes, sorry. It's uh, against the international law to do that. But when you're a big country, you can do what you want. But I do not, dis I don't despair of humanity. And this gives us a segue into my book, because one of the central themes is the human predator and the concept that, that there are people who are malignant, ne negative. And if we taught our kids to recognise the characteristics of such people, then they would be less likely to vote for them. They'd be less likely to join their cults and they'd be less likely to marry them. And those characteristics are alarmingly simple. And yet we teach nothing about it. So should we go through the little list? I, yeah. I, I do have it here. I just have to put my spectacles on. I'll nod every time you pick one of my characteristics. That's it. So the first thing that I generally say is that, that human predators are mean. That's you, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, they're mm. utterly selfish. Yeah. They pretend friendship and love, but they feel absolutely nothing for others. Th this is this is hitting home, isn't it, Andrew? They're <laughs> it charming and good at flattery. Ah, no. But don't <laughs> don't mean a single word of it. Yeah, you're not really charming, admittedly. No. Um, Actually, watching your wonderful documentary about the Argentinian exorcist, I thought you were tremendously charming. And you appear to speak fluent Spanish also. Not everybody knows that about you. <laughs> well, it, it isn't actually, because the woman I'm marrying in July... Congratulations. ...also speaks fluent Spanish. Thank you. So so that's the sign of a very good person. Did she, mention, did she watch it? No, she hasn't as yet, no. Well, it's time to, isn't it? So she can judge my Spanish. I was really impressed with it. And I think that generally people should watch it because you unmasked that man. You showed that he was indeed a human predator. If we carry on yeah. with the list. He's definitely on this uh, list, isn't he? Oh, one of the most awful examples I've ever seen. And, you know, just a dreadful man. I, I mean, on the topic of exorcism, I about 35 years ago, I talked with the exorcist for the uh, south east of England district of the Anglican Church. And I said to him, um, well, how do you go about an exorcism? He said, I refer people to a psychiatrist. 
thought, well, they got one thing right, you know. Human predators brag and boast and make up outrageous lies. We're not mentioning Donald Trump at this point. When challenged, they blame others. Um, they don't feel anxiety or fear. And there's a variant here that with the psychopathic end of it, they, they don't feel fear. This is well known. With the narcissistic end, the malignant narcissist, not mentioning Donald Trump, they actually are very cowardly. And they'll boast about how brave they are. You know, if there was a school shooter, they'd just run up and smack them about until they stopped doing it. Do you remember that one where, where Trump was saying that he'd have, he'd have gone after him even without a gun? He's so brave. But I feel like, so, so I guess, so the list you're reading out, the, these, are, these are traits that it could, it's sort of going to malignant people, but it could be narcissism, could be um, psychopathy, for example, could be, I, I guess, a three di uh, triad traits. So. The dark triad. Yeah, the Machiavellian. Yeah, Trump to me, he looks like, and I might be wrong, he looks like we could do some Guantanamo Bay stuff on him. And he would just go, what? He would just sit there. He wouldn't go. Maybe I'm totally misreading that. I feel like I could pull his toenails out and he'd go, what? He would just, just, just nothing in that face. He looks like a psychopath to me. Yeah. Um, I, the reason I use Human Predator, having read far too much about all of these conditions since the 80s, is because I don't think that we need to be in the situation of diagnosing these people. Um, I had the great good fortune to do one of Bandy Lee's town hall, online town hall meetings. And Bandy Lee, of course, was thrown out of the American Psychiatric Association for publishing a book um, called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, which is a very well written book. I was surprised that I could read it. You know? <laughs> a bunch of psychiatrists, psychologists and a lawyer and Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal for Trump, all get together and badmouth Trump. The, if if we were to, you know, my thing is, if you see these characteristics, don't worry too much about whether you've got a Machiavellian uh, malignant narcissist. And we can talk, narcissism very interesting. And I'd love to say some things about that when we get to the end of the list, if I can still remember my name by then. Um, but the, the, the moment when Trump was, when the uh, K-pop fans got him to believe that there was a queue of millions to see him. There's footage of him when he, he got off Air Force One back at the White House. And it's the only... I, I'm fascinated by Trump. I've watched hours and hours of documentary about him. Um, as soon as he you know, said he was going to stand for president, I started getting stuff together. And of course, my friend Steve Hassan wrote The Cult of Trump, which is a very fine read um, and gets into a lot of this stuff. But he was deflated. You could his tie was undone and he was so I think if you pulled his toenails out that as soon as you got anywhere near his toenails, please don't do it to me, do it to him, do it to him. Just like Winston Smith in 1984. Um, human predators are impulsive and easily bored. They demand thrills and take dangerous risks. They enjoy pushing others into taking dangerous risks too. Uh, so Rajneesh, the uh, Osho the Buddha, um, Bhagwan, which means supreme god, by the way. I, a Hindu friend of mine was very shocked when I called him Bhagwan. <laughs> Rajneesh. He, it said, um, Hugh Milne, uh, who wrote The God That Failed, who was uh, a bodyguard to Rajneesh. And he researched his childhood and he found, that when he was, I think, about eight years old, there was an incident in the village where he persuaded another boy to walk across a tightrope. The boy fell to his death. 
So they, they get other people to do risky things. They're bullies with explosive tempers. That explosive temper is, I can see it's welling up inside you right now. I'm bubbling. Bubbling. <laughs> They're cunning and manipulative. They enjoy humiliating people and they weaken people with insults and put downs. They also tend to make up petty rules that, that you won't possibly be able to follow, which is an aspect okay. of all cult groups. You know, so you'll always be, you'll always fail. Um, you'll never be pure enough. You'll never be good enough. And then it, it's kind of like Father Ted when you, when Father Ted phones the Vatican and talks to his friends and they're all sitting around smoking and drinking and, <laughs> you know, that, that at the top level, it's all, all gone badly wrong. Uh, narcissism. You see, I did yes. remember. What is yes. my name? Um, it's the wrong word, isn't it? Because Narcissus sat by the pool and fell in love with himself to the exclusion of Echo and all other things. Freud took the word uh, from Havelock Ellis, the English psychologist, and Havelock Ellis properly defined it. He said a narcissist is somebody who spends all their time masturbating and has no interest in having sex with other people. I saw that look on your face. Um, <laughs> so they asked, Havelock Ellis was, it's a sexual thing about self-obsession sexually. And that would be sitting and looking in the pool. Eric Fromm, who pulled away from Freud gradually and said stupid things about stupid homophobic things, which, which are unforgivable. But putting that aside, he took the word narcissist and said, it actually means um, we're not dealing with narcissism because the idea that Freud gives is that somebody who only loves themselves. But in fact, Narcissists don't know how to love. And what they want is adulation from other people to give them a sense of self, that they, you know, which is why they collapse, why they're vulnerable. And, um, you know, in, in any failure, they will tend to retreat. I'm going to take my spectacles off again. When you, when you speak of these people, when you, are, are, do you have people like in your personal life that you're imagining in your mind's eye? I, I've met many people who fit into the different areas of predation. I've, I've met a lot of confidence tricksters they're very attracted to Scientology. Um, you know, I knew a guy who, uh, when I was involved, he uh, sold uh, this spray-on cladding for houses and he decided it was a waste of money putting the primer on. And he gave a lifetime guarantee and the stuff all fell off within a year. And uh, he went to Scientology and he'd given them hundreds of thousands of pounds that he'd made doing this. And he said, what should I do? And they said, move to somewhere that doesn't have extradition. Because otherwise they might have had to give the money back, you know. We're yeah. the most ethical people on the planet. You know? Narcissism is a misnomer. And uh, uh, Craig Malkin, who's Harvard School of Medicine, he gives this wonderful thing about narcissism where he gives a scale which has echoists at one end and narcissists at the end, other end. And in the middle, it's got people who have the, the proper amount of narcissism. And he says that it's a, the scale of narcissism is a scale of how special you feel. And I think that's not really good psych. This is Harvard School of Medicine. This is not good psychology. What's happened is you have a misnomer, which then is built upon. And there is not a proper degree of narcissism. And I personally don't believe we should love ourselves. I think we should learn to like ourselves, learn to accept our failings. 
But when you get to the point where you think you're absolutely wonderful, and, and you are absolutely wonderful, Andrew, what can mm, I say? Thanks, John. You're so uh, yeah. handsome. You know, I mean, it's incredible. And your charm and vigour yeah. and intellect. It's, it's I take after you, John. <laughs> yeah, people have taken after me before, but usually with cudgels, you know. I'll come after you with cudgels. I do, I do wonder about this. We do have this idea. I'm starting to wonder, and I've got a very nihilistic view of human life and i'm quite young and so I, that obviously that that's welcome there's plenty you know, of time could, yeah okay trying to to feel a bit optimistic but i do feel a bit like there's so much talk of like you know when you see people debating on different sides of political spectrums and stuff there, there's a lot of talk about being on the right side of history but the undertones there are i'm more empathetic than you there's like this constant competing about being not a narcissist and being an empath and i just think well if you're doing that you probably are a bit of a narcissist and then i wonder well maybe we all are Maybe everyone is a little because that's how you grow up, and you are quite self-obsessed, John Atac, and everybody else. You know, maybe we are. What do you think? Well, there was a, when I was first studying psychopathy because of Ron Hubbard and wanting to understand him, I found a wonderful paper by a guy who listed the characteristics of the psychopath and said, just like every ten-year-old. And the idea that Fromm puts into this, which I absolutely subscribe to, it or Patricia Crittenden. Uh, she wrote a wonderful book called Raising Parents. And she's basically saying people don't grow up. And from in Escape from Freedom, his 1941 book about um, how did Nazism, Nazism come, come about. Now, he was a, a Freudian communist Jew, so he had to leave Germany. And um, he developed his ideas further, but, but he wanted to understand this thing. And, and so he said, that he thought that the problem was that people didn't develop a self, that most people have a pseudo self, so they're looking for approval from others. Am I driving the right BMW? Uh, you know, is this the right shirt? It is actually a very nice shirt. I must say it's lovely, soft material. Um, you know, is my jewellery the right jewellery? People are, they're looking for other people's opinion of them, which when you are young is reasonable, but you should grow up, should get to a point where you're confident in yourself, you know. Um, this is the way I like to wear my hair, you know. Yeah. And I've still got hair, and I'm, I'll be 67 in a week's time, so I'm pretty pleased yeah. with that. But Jeff Lovely. Beck, at the age of 78, <laughs> strutting about stage, my God, I hope I have that much energy when I'm 78. I probably won't. But to div And if we put away all of the psychiatric categories and narcissism or schizophrenia or depression or any of these wonderful ideas. And we say, has the person grown up? Have they found a place in the world? Do they feel confident in themselves and their beliefs? And for me, that's how you overcome authoritarianism because authoritarianism is bullies for leaders and followers are going, well, he looks like he knows what he's talking about and I'm not sure. So getting people so that they have more confidence in their own opinions um, which is something that has to start in early childhood. Um, my good friend, Ira Chalef, um, wrote a wonderful book called Intelligent Disobedience. Um, he is the guy who gave us courageous followership, which is a wonderful concept. We can't just blame it on the leaders. We've got to restrain them in some way. And he, he learned this as a lesson because he worked for Ron Hubbard uh, way back in the 1970s. And left in what, 40 years now since he left Scientology. But 
You're teaching a class one day and, and a woman said, I, I have what you're talking about under the te under my desk. It's like, okay. And she brought out a guide dog she was training. And so the guide dog has to be, able, if you've got a blind person, they're going to walk into something. The guide dog has to be able to say, no, this is called intelligent disobedience. Why don't we teach it to our children? Why do we just teach them to be obedient? And... Um, I'd like to answer that question. Well, it's a really interesting one. And I, I think the hard part about that, when you know, that anal the guide dog analogy, analogy and stuff is sometimes you're getting, you're, you're becoming obedient to uh, political leaders, be they right wing or left wing or whatever it might be. But sometimes you're also being obedient to a particular cultural uh, fashion or trend. And then sometimes that fashion or trend is actually probably for the benefit of society. So it's good to follow along with it and sometimes it can take us in really strange difficult places so i was reading an article just today that was talking about of course you know and i do go on about it sometimes but the woke culture stuff and the reason i go on about that one more than i don't think that one's any more dangerous than any other one it's just that that one is harder to pick up i think i see it as a little bit more insidious and subtle um and I know that like a lot of that comes from the postmodernism and Foucault and stuff. But those guys in the seventies were signing like papers, declarations in France, you know, uh, in favour of child-adult relationships. So yes. the 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 point being that man boy some, love, yeah, the Nambla stuff. That's also South Park. Yeah. But this, there's yeah. this concept that I think we believe sometimes that that anything new is progress that we're always moving towards progress when actually what's happening is like bumps in the road and they'll go back and forward and that kind of thing and I, so that's that's the hard part it's like it's not just we've got to look out for trump and look out for hitler and jeremy corbyn and whoever it might be and bernie sanders and all this. you're also looking out for sort of cultural group control that you've got to stop right conformity and uniformity um i believe that as I believe that at the moment our democracy is failing because we're electing, you know, people like Bolsonaro. Or, um, Duterte has now been replaced by a, a member of the Marcos family. And sort of, when will they ever learn? Um, we've had uh, Modi and uh, Abe and just these Scott Morrison, scummo. Um, they tell me it should be scomo, but I prefer scummo. Um, we we now have a prime minister whose initials are BJ. What are you going to say? <laughs> oh, um, who who has never told a lie, and is the first first prime minister to be convicted of a crime while in office? Here's another question. Then this is an interesting one because Boris Johnson. There was plenty of evidence before he took the throne, so to speak. Of you know there was the recordings of him. Uh, saying he was going to get someone beaten up. He was going to beat up a uh, for, for a journalist or something. He was going to break their legs, was it? Or something like that. Break the, break that the bone. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, and it lied in articles. So what if it's just a case of we sort of... We don't like to say this, but we don't actually care that there's a malignant person running our country. It's a balance, isn't it? That, you know, um, William James, the psychologist, the father of psychology one of the fathers of psychology, had this brilliant idea where he talked about feelings of knowing, the sense of certainty. Now, um, another fantastic book that everybody, everybody, everybody should read, On Being Certain. Ooh, let's... On Being Certain by Robert A. Burton. Robert A. Burton was the head of neurology at Mount Zion Hospital, the University of California in San Francisco, and is a genius. Um, 
I was so impressed by this book that I wrote to him and thanked him. Um, and he just picks up this point about certainty. And my example, and, and it's my favourite, and I've been using it for a long time, so I'm going to do it again. So I'm very sorry to anybody who's heard this the 300 other times I've said it. When I was 17 years old, I spent two hours on the street with a, a, a born-again Christian who was trying to recruit me. And he was an English teacher as well, by the way. Never taught me anything, but wasn't at a school that I was at. But two hours on a sunny day, having what I thought was quite a pleasant conversation about, you know, uh, so, well, where does Jesus actually say he's the son of God? And it's like, oh, well, um, and I was just being nice, you know. After two hours, he backed away from me, you know, knowing <laughs> I'd leap on his back and rip his head off if he didn't. And um, he said, um, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. The feelings of knowing. This is what we find in all fanaticism. You know, as um, Thules, the inventor of critical thinking, um, back in the 1930, Straight or Crooked Thinking, another wonderful book. He says, uh, or his grandson who rewrote the book, because that's the version of it I've got, um, that as soon as somebody starts to get angry about their opinions, they are not thinking rationally. And so people hang on to this. We, we have the right to bear arms. Yep, therefore you have the right to your own personal nuclear arsenal, uh, your own tank. You know, there was, a, there was a cult group called Happy Healthy Holy Organization, 3HO, and they bought tanks. None of your Waco stuff. They bought tanks. You know, well, I had this recently because within a recent episode was Karlyn Borisenko, who's a, uh, a psychiatrist, but she's she's an extreme libertarian, as libertarian, and she is running for the state of New Hampshire as a libertarian. And I quite like a lot of the ideas of libertarianism, um, but there there was this great story that I heard from John Ronson actually about a town that got taken over by bears in New Hampshire because they stopped paying taxes. They were able to sort of get away from taxes and things like that. And uh, they had nobody to sort of stop the bears. Bears would sort of come along and they sort of fed them and stuff like that. But within a few months, the bears no longer had any fear and they were just like eating their pets. They were just, people would sort of open, come into their kitchens and find a bear in there going through their stuff and there was nothing they could do. It all collapsed because of the bears. And I think it's what you're, the point you're making, which is like, you know, nice idea let's discuss it and all that but if you were just like no this is my thing i'm so sure of this thing so but yeah well if you're in for the if that's about guns and stuff then you can have a tank and if you're about a libertarian it means you can have bears and i sometimes I, this is the one obviously this is the controversial one i keep going back to it but the woke culture thing if you can self-identify as anything oh no you know what that's going to get in trouble <laughs> i don't want to get in trouble. trouble i don't care i don't know here's what here's a <laughs> It's just taking it to that limit, isn't it? But my, you know, you're going to like. You'll probably already know this. One more time. When? when what, what is it? Oh yeah, Bertrand Russell. It's my favourite quote. I've got it written down here. When you're studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Never let yourself be diverted either by what you wish to believe or by what you think would have beneficent social effects if it were believed. But look only and solely at what are the facts. That's a good one, isn't it? It is a good one. I, I actually recently finished reading um, Bertrand Russell's Conquest of Happiness, written, I think, in about 1930, the same time as Straight and Crooked Thinking. And I'm, gonna, I'm looking for a quotation here to respond to that, which, which is a little bit older. I should say, by the way, that, that some gun, like the gun people, a lot of gun people in, in favour of guns, 
are moderate and they do see both sides and they sort of just lean to that side a little bit and you know a lot of them do want restrictions brought in yeah it, it's a matter of where where you put the level that that um you know assault weapons as a defense against what you know so the right to to bear arms is in fact when it's it's written down the right to have a single shot musket that's the right because that's the most advanced weapon of the time um in you know to add to what Bertrand Russell said this was said in about 500 BC so it's a little bit before Bertrand Russell's time believe nothing on the faith of traditions even though they've been held in honor for many generations in many places do not believe a thing because many people speak it do not believe on the faith of the sages of the past do not believe what you yourself have imagined persuading yourself that some god inspires you Believe nothing on the sole authority of your masters or priests. After examination, believe what you yourself have tested and found to be rational and conform your conduct thereto. And that was said by uh, Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha. That's great. It's a similar sort of line of reasoning, isn't it? Yeah, and, and as far as I can tell, he's the first person in history to make this kind of statement. You know, that um, we'll find... Some similar things in, in Chinese thought and in uh, Greek thought in the next century or so. But, and it's so hard to do because to examine our certainties, you know, I, my own personal crisis on this was back in 1991. And um, I started thinking about, you know, the Christian thought that we're meant to, to love everyone, and uh, which I was brought up to believe. And I sort of went, is that true? And I oh, no, it must be true. And I realised I was having that reaction that meant that I had to think about it. And in the end, which brings us back, uh, as James Joyce would say, along a commodious vicus, to the idea of empathy. Um, that, and again, Barack Obama was somebody who said we should all be more empathetic. I, I have what I call the empathy disorder if uh, the empathy quotient, the thing that um, um, Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin Simon gave to the one of the many things he's given to the world, brilliant man. But you can look it up online, the empathy quotient, and you can take the test. I test at 97% because one of the questions is wrong, right? Which is um, when you are talking with people, do you talk more about yourself or about them? And their answer is you talk more about yourself and that makes you empathetic. And my answer is it depends what the situation is. They may need, and I'm interested in, you know, even the things you're saying are interesting me. What can I, sorry. Um, but even my <laughs> things. Yeah, it took you a moment for that penny to drop. Um, yeah, well, but there's a slight delay. I have, I'm the first person, I believe, to put forward the idea that it's a disorder. This isn't a good thing to 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 want to take homeless people into your house and, you know, kiss lepers, as St. Francis apparently used to do. Um, it, it's not it's not healthy. Um, so, again, there's a Yale professor called Paul Bloom. I've got such a lot of books here. He's, he's been on this, Paul Bloom. He's been on this podcast. Has he? Well, there you go. Yeah. And his that's fantastic. Against empathy. The case for rational compassion. Now. 
I think everything's in the title. I did read the book, but the title had already convinced me, you know, that we need to be, we need to think about how much we're giving and what we're giving. Because again, um, as a professor, Professor Jane McGregor put forward, a, who's at Nottingham University here, and she put forward the idea that in our society, you have sociopaths, empaths, and what she calls apaths, who are the 60% of people. And it always seems to be that number. Milgram came to 60% of people who'd pushed the button to kill somebody. Uh, Schopenhauer in the 19th century said 60% of people don't become human. And he was one of them, frankly. Um, and uh, Eric Fromm also, it's, for some reason, it's 60% of people will be authoritarian. They, they're followers. They're not capable of making up decisions. Until we can move that to 51% of us capable to do something, we're, we're not going to have much of a, a democracy functioning. But that idea of, of taking, looking at things from what Jane McGregor is saying is that sociopaths get hold of apaths to destroy empaths. You know, that's the simple hypothesis because empaths are very easily caught out. You know, uh, I have been in my lifetime taken in by one or two uh, predators, including Ron Hubbard, but some some people, you know, who've nicked things from me or... Um, you know, abused. I used to have agents from Scientology. There was one point where their head of intelligence cracked back in 93. And she told me, these are the four people I've got running against you. And it was really shocking because there were people I was trying to help and, you know, devoting time to. And they were, they had, they were recording the conversations to use against me. You know, it's horrifying. So empathy is not where we should be headed. Um, compassion, you know, and it is a differentiation, you know, an interesting one, but, but compassion, uh, understanding other people's feelings and, and being able to um, work towards the best outcome. Almost co cognitive empathy rather than the feeling of empathy. Yeah, the, the cognitive empathy is, is used as, as a description of psychopaths, of course, that they understand what other people are feeling. Whereas on the other end of the scale, and again, this is Baron Cohen, you have uh, autism where you are not aware, or at least not aware of how to react to other people's feelings. Would you like a nice hot beverage? That's the, the usual thing you have to say to people if they look disturbed, apparently, in any way. And finding you know, the bell curve and the outliers that, that there should be this position in the middle where, where we are concerned about other people's feelings especially with this hierarchical empathy. No, but go on. I was just going to say there's this this competitive empathy thing going on as well. Everyone has to show that they have more empathy than other people as well. And it's good to hear you say, well, that's not what we should strive for. And it opens the door to saintly narcissism, to, to people who appear. And I'm going to, you know, get people to complain here, like Mother Teresa, who, according to a nurse who worked with her for six months, would go out on the street, find somebody who was dying, bring them in, convert them to Jesus, and then go to the media. And for me, that's not really compassion. In fact, compassion, I think Jesus points this out, that you pray in a closet. They had closets even back then. And you keep it to yourself. So making broad your phylactery and you're Jewish, you know what a phylactery is, don't you? No. Most people probably don't. There, you'll see ultra-Orthodox Jews putting a little leather pouch on their head and on their arm. 
And these I've are called phylacteries. And it's yep. showing off that you're praying. I know it as tefillin. Tefillin. The, the, there you go. Then yeah, in, in the new in the translation of the New Testament I have they're called phylacteries, which is probably some Greek. So that so, so those are the stories that we we tell ourselves about religion and, and virtue and Mother Teresa stuff, but it might come from evolutionary psychology um, in terms of just, you know, the status game and all that kind of thing. And in terms of, you know, you would get more food from the rest of your tribe if you appeared virtuous, but the key word being appeared. If you appeared like you were a nice person who shared your food, you'll get more food back. And that's 300,000 years of doing that. So we're very good at convincing, but we also have to convince ourselves. I don't think people are going around saying, look at what a good person I am. And then believing God deep down, I'm not. I feel like they're possibly actually telling themselves that wow i really am wonderful because that's one of the delusions you need to get through life which is that you're just a fantastic person i think that boris johnson probably looks at the mirror every night and says i am so wonderful so you know, handsome the, the, so gorgeous you know so fat so plumply yeah. fat you know but um i do <laughs> think fat that, shame, that, john <laughs> yeah, that's it let's get him um, but, and yeah. I think there's that balance. I said earlier that, that I, I'm not sure that it's proper for us to love ourselves. And I think you know, for me, this is a very important point. It's always felt a bit icky to me. You know, the, the, the greatest love you'll ever know is for yourself, as Guy Garvey yeah, put it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And bless Guy Garvey, what a genius. But that particular concept is just weird to me that um, that boastfulness, that bragging, that sense of how great you are. Um, why that there's just something wrong with that but i must say you know having reached a, a ripe fairly ripe old age that you know as a as a younger man i despaired of humanity i i actually was was born with a you know the empathetic philanthropy wanting to help people and um i found out that virtue is its own punishment um that it, you know it, karma forget it you know the, you know you, you keep you know why 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 did why was hitler able to do anything if karma is true you know so but now i, I actually i'm the only person i know i think who's um and i hate this word but optimistic about humanity i think that that we we do have the toolkit to solve the problems um you know whether we will or not is another matter. And what Putin has, has done recently has really upset the apple cart in terms of the human future, I think, and will lead to famine next year, of course, which, which is the, you know, the, the scary thought when Ukrainian grain can't get out to the world. But oh I'm celiac, so who cares about grain, you know? <laughs> we'll, we'll leave everyone on that thought. Um, where can everyone get your book, John? What's it called? It's called uh, Opening Our Minds, Avoiding Abusive Relationships and Authoritarian Groups. Um, it's available, it should be available through any bookseller and uh, through Amazon, the evil, wicked Amazon. Um, and um, or, or directly through CreateSpace, actually. You know, I get more money if you buy it from CreateSpace. And um, money for me is, is the highest virtue. That's what I've always said. Money for John Atak. <laughs> it will lead to reincarnation as a godly being. So, um, and also, my, there's my channel, which is John Atak, uh, Family and Friends. And I've written a bunch of other books as well. A beautiful channel. And you sometimes are on with your son, aren't you? Yeah, Sam. Um, and my son, 
uh, Dan, uh, there's some of his guitar stuff. And um, he's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Lots of things, Everyone lots check of that subjects. out. Check it oh, out. Brilliant. John, you've been on the edge. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, John Atak, for joining me a second time and firmly establishing yourself as a member of the On The Edge family. John really makes me laugh and makes me go, wow, which is exactly what I want my podcast guests to do. He's a really nice fella too. Get his book, Opening Our Minds, Avoiding Abusive Relationships and Authoritarian Groups on Amazon. It's been really well reviewed by cult expert Stephen Hassan, I see. You can see that on Amazon. He's written really nicely about it. So, you know, that's a real stamp of approval on there. Follow John on Twitter on ATAC underscore John and get the rest of our bonus section, well, the entirety of the bonus section by signing up on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold. It's a really interesting one with mad fun questions. And obviously when you sign up, I give you a little shout out if you want and I message with you. It's always really nice to interact with people who want to support this podcast. Thank you so much to Jim R, my latest patron to sign up. He also goes by Tall Penguin and does his own interviews on Tall Penguin Media. Good luck, Jim, and thank you so much again for your support. Thank you to Karen Jacobs for your kind and supportive words on Facebook. They really made me smile. That's all for today. I'm a bit confused by the list of upcoming guests that I've put together, so I'm not sure who's next, but coming up are... Mike Rothschild on debunking conspiracy theories and the one in particular, that conspiracy theory about his namesake, the Rothschild family. And Mike King, a former police officer who caught and exposed the cult of Zion, the sexual abuse sect. A polygamous, weird, horrible thing. He went and exposed it. He wrote a fascinating book about it and he'll be on. Lots of Mikes coming up. Mike Rothschild and Mike King. Anyway, hope you enjoy those and have yourself a lovely day. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.